You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, well, we keep going through the shorter catechism, and we have copies here, and Kess will come around with a few. Um, if you would like a copy of the Shorter Catechism to look, look at this morning, um, again, take this home if you don't have one, or if you merely forgot one today, drop it in the box, and, or you can pick it up next time. Um, but I uh, hope you can make use of those. So we come to question 29, and we're going to uh, do 29 and 30 this morning. They go hand in hand, and so we will work through these. Um, Really what's, what's going on by way of introduction is we've been looking at uh, what we call the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation the last several weeks, looking at what Christ did in history when he came. Christ came in history to save a people. And so we look at the Historia Salutis, and now we're looking at, okay, what is the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation for an individual? How does the history of salvation come to me personally? So what is that connection point between what Christ did and now us individually? And we're going to begin to unpack that over the coming weeks. And we're going to start with the core of that this morning. So let's just go straight into our question 29, and we will unfold these great things. So question 29 asks, how are we made partakers in the redemption purchased by Christ? And the answer is, We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. So we are made partakers by the effectual application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. So again, that question is, what did Christ do? Christ's redemption he accomplished. How does it come to us? We've been talking about that redemption all the way back in In question 20, we began talking about what does redemption mean? What did Christ do to accomplish redemption? And we talked about those three offices. What he did, we we categorize it under these three headings, prophet, priest, and king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. All of this was done for our salvation. There was nothing extra there. It was all for us. Nothing superfluous. And so what makes this personal? How does what Christ did out there come and affect us in here? And another way to ask the question that's being asked here is, how is one saved? That's at the the core of it. That's the question. How is someone saved? How is someone redeemed? And so the the high level answer that we just got on question 29 is, one is redeemed, one's made a recipient of Christ's redemptive work by God, and particularly God, the Holy Spirit. And so there's a couple of of aspect here I want us to unpack as we speak of uh, speak here in question 29. Um, and the first is this, redemption is monergistic. What does that word mean? One-sided. Yes, that's right. So it comes from uh, Greek kind of piling together Greek words. Mono means one and gistic, uh, ergo, um, is, uh, or ergon, ergo is the verb, ergon is the, the, the noun, to work or work. So one work, one person working instead of synergistic, 
right? Soon means with, uh, the same ergo, synergistic uh, means together. We're working together, but monergistic means there's one working. There's one person who has worked for salvation, and it is God who's done that, as our question says. How are we made partakers? It is the Holy Spirit, God is doing this. We see Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So it is God who is the one who brings about salvation, period. Salvation is of the Lord. It is not of us. We begin with this statement as our question unfolds. It is God who accomplishes and then applies salvation. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. It is monergistic. And this is one of those things, uh, as good Reformed folk, we hold dear and we talk about often, right? This is not us earning salvation or achieving salvation. This is God's free gift of grace to us. It is monergistic from beginning to end. It is God's work. We also see here is redemption is Trinitarian. Now, in a question and answer, we have only two persons of the Trinity, but we're going to imply all three. It talks about Christ accomplishing and the Holy Spirit applying. And um, in 1 Peter 2, it does a wonderful job of, of speaking of salvation. All persons of the Trinity are involved. Salvation is, quote, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So you have the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So we have all three persons there. The Father foreordains the foreknowledge of the Father who elects a, per, a people. The Son accomplishes it. talks about the sprinkling of his blood, the sacrifice, and the purification of his blood. Christ is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice. And then we have the Holy Spirit, who then, it says, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and what's, what that means in a broader sense is the one, the one who makes us holy, the one who purifies us, the one who applies that sprinkled blood to us. So we see it's a Trinitarian work. Uh, salvation is not just monergistic, it's Trinitarian. All persons of the Trinity are involved in this. It's not as if um, God the Father elects and then the Son does uh, a work of redemption that covers all people in the world uh, and then the Spirit only takes that work that it covers all people and applies it to those who God elected. At that point, we see the Trinity at odds, but we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together for a common salvation of, the, of God's people. So it's Trinitarian. And then we'll say redemption is applied by the Holy Spirit. And that's the, the key angle here in, in question 29. We've looked at Christ, the second person of the Trinity, what he's done. Now we're saying, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit applies what Christ has done to us. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes what Christ has done out there and applies it to me in here. Uh, I, I want to just, I, I mentioned, I, or I listed these three verses, John 3, 3 to 5, and I want to read them uh, in, in Titus and 1 Corinthians. I want to read them for us just so we can see the biblical way this is spoken of. John 3, 3 through 5 says this, Jesus answered him. This is Nicodemus, right? He comes at night to Christ asking him questions. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So one is born of water and the spirit. And we put these two together. Jesus is actually saying one thing here, water and the spirit, talking about baptism. Um, we're not saved by baptism, but that baptism indicates the working of the spirit. So these two things are joined in the way we speak of them biblically. 
Um, but water and the Spirit, it's the Spirit's work who makes us new, who gives us life. We cannot enter the kingdom. Uh, we are not born again apart from the Spirit's work. Um, Titus 3, 4 and 5 says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it says, God our Savior. So Jesus Christ appeared. He came to save us. We're saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who does that washing, the cleansing, bringing to us Christ's work and does that to us personally, individually. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 11, same, same ideas. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it's interesting, we see in all these, Christ, the work of Christ is there and the Holy Spirit applying it is in all of these verses. Um, but it, it's interesting, I want to highlight that. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, again, you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means on the authority of, on the... Um, uh, because of what he has done effectively, but on the authority of Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does it in the name of the Savior, of Jesus Christ, who's accomplished it for us. But it is the Spirit who actually does that application to God's people. So, redemption is monergistic, it's Trinitarian, it's applied by the Holy Spirit. And next question is going to take us a little bit more deeper into some of these things. Um, and then the, the last note on question 29, before we open it up uh, for more discussion, is this. The Holy Spirit's work is efficacious. Because the, the question, remember, says, we're made partakers by the effectual application of it, by the Holy Spirit. Right? So it's not like the Holy Spirit has a general application of this to us, that maybe if we do one more thing, it'll take root and be efficacious at that point. No, the Holy Spirit does this, and the Holy Spirit's work is efficacious. It brings about the intended result period. The Holy Spirit is not impotent. He is not uh, unable to bring the results. The Holy Spirit does something that brings to fruition this salvific results. And so the image that we have here in question 29 is that the Holy Spirit is taking what Christ has done and applies it to us and brings it to us. This is not um, the, um, and we don't say this to take pot shots, but another view of this would be an Arminian view where Christ has done something out there and what I need to do is go up and grab it and bring it to me. But that's not the picture that we have biblically in, in this question and answer. The answer shows us Christ has done this out here and it's the Holy Spirit who takes it and applies it to you. It's not you reaching and grabbing it and bringing it to yourself. It's the Holy Spirit who's doing this work of saving a people, applying Christ's work to his people. Okay, so I did a lot of talking there for a moment, um, but let's, we'll open it up here. Question 29, questions, comments? That was, that was not the case. How then would you see the verses like all the, all the open invitations for salvation? Right. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's right. Uh, follow the next, follow the straight and narrow path. That's right. How, how, would, how would those be interpreted within the overall context? Let's come back to that uh, in, a, in a few moments in the next question. Ask that again if we don't hit it directly in the next question, because the next question talks about faith. And that's where we have the free offer of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit applies this by giving us faith and thereby uniting us to Christ. So um, they don't work against each other, but they work in tandem. But we'll come to that in a minute. Good question. Rob, yeah. That's right. 
So if I'm talking to someone, how would I explain like why it's only effectual for some? Right, so you're talking about particularly um, what we call limited atonement or definite atonement. Christ's atonement was definite for a particular people. And how do we talk about that? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, well, we could go a lot of places with that. Um, I would say, for me, I think the, the easiest theological argument, so not, not biblical argument, and we can go to biblical arguments and see what Christ did. He says, I lay down my life for my sheep, right? I don't lay down my life. For everyone, for my sheep. He said there's an intentional aspect here. So we can go biblically. Theologically, though, and I tried to head this off a few minutes ago, um, was that sometimes people will say, well, I believe that, that the Father elects a certain people. So some people will say, I'm four-point Calvinist or three-point Calvinist or something like that. They believe in election, the Father elects, but they don't believe in a definite atonement, that Christ's atonement was for a particular people. And they say, no, Christ died for everybody, even though Father elected only some. Christ died for everybody universally, but then the Spirit, uh, based on the faith that God foreordains or even just looks down the quarters of time and sees faith in certain people, the Spirit applies Christ's work to only those the Father elects. And so, but we see there is an incongruity between the persons of the Trinity. We're seeing the Father electing some, but the Son dying for everybody? That, that is, that's in conflict uh, in the will of the one Godhead. So there's only one divine will. There's not three persons of the Trinity with three different wills. There's one divine will, and that splits that will. The Father's electing some, but the Son's dying for everybody? Um, and so I think theologically, for me, that was one of the most, and maybe this is just biographical, but that was one of the most persuasive argument to me to say, well, yeah, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are on the same team, on the same side, and uh, accomplishing the same salvation, and they can't be at odds in that way. So that's just one, one thing to talk about. But it's, it's a massive topic you're speaking of um, that, that, that I'm not sure if we'll hit it here in the Shorter Catechism, but we can come back to it another time. Yeah, John? Then how should we... When we teach, talk people about Christ that are not Christian, right? How what's what's a what's an effective way to talk about this thing that you right. have to talk about until right. people are saved? Yeah, yeah. So um, the gospel pronunciation, uh, uh, the gospel announcement, is not that we can't say because we don't know Jesus died for you. We don't know that, and it's hard to say that if. We're in the covenant community. We can say, yes, Christ died for you. But if you're a part of the outside of the covenant community, it's hard for us to say, we can't say Jesus died for you because Jesus died for his sheep. I don't know if you're sheep or not, but what we say in these evangelistic things, evangelistic um, opportunities is Christ died for sinners like you and me. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so that's one way of making sure theologically our gospel call and our evangelistic uh, endeavors are in line with our theology and biblical teaching. Um, but then maybe your question is, do we talk about the monergistic aspect of salvation prior to those, prior to salvation? Is that what you're getting at? Do we? In, in, it's more of the, if, when you think about this, I can get caught up so much in thinking about the theological. Right. That I miss the actual. Right. Christ. That's is, right. That's right. Except Christ. Yes, that's right. It's an the offer is to you. Right. Exactly. The exactly. Offer is given to you. The that's right. The offer is given to sinners. The offer is given to sinners like the like, yeah. like you. And then getting too caught up in that makes can tongue tie a person. Exactly. That's right, exactly. And that's where, to your first question, the free offer of the gospel is absolutely a, a, what we believe. And that's where uh, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a promise. If you come to me, I will give you rest. So that universal call of the gospel is out there, and it's come to Christ. If you're weary, heavy laden, 
come to him and he gives rest, period. Um, and so we need to remember that, right? We don't, that, and that's exactly right. That's the gospel call um, to, to dying sinners as we all were. Mm-hmm. God would be unjust in sending people to hell because That's right. Christ already bore those sins. That's right. You can't have it both ways. That would be unjust. And Very I good. One of my favorite hymns by Augustus Hoblade called From Whence is Fear and Unbelief, but he talks about mm-hmm. that. God would be unjust to send someone to hell if Christ already died for them. Yeah, he amen. He died for everyone and be, and be just. That's right. So I think that was a helpful way for me. That's really good. Yeah, that's a great point as well. Very good. Thank you. All right, question 29, Any, anything else? We're going to go into some deeper waters in question 30. So let's, let's dive in there and see, see what we can uncover. So we'll go to question 30 here. Uh, again, I'll read and, we can, we'll, and answer, or I'll, I'll read the question and answer. Question 30 is, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? So the first question was, um, how are we made partakers? And the answer is the Spirit. And okay, question 30 is, well, how does the Spirit apply it to us? Right, so we're getting more into the mechanics here. How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So the Spirit works faith in us and thereby unites us to Christ in our effectual calling. Um, So we're going to take the idea of effectual calling and table that because that's going to be next week. There's a whole question on effectual calling. What does that mean? Um, But for now, this effectual calling is where where the Holy Spirit effectually persuades us to have faith in Christ, to look to Christ. So it's it's the Holy Spirit's work to bring about faith in us. Um, And then, so so effectual calling, we'll table that, hold off on that. And so the two main concepts here is first is... um, Working faith in us and uniting us to Christ. So those are the, the two pieces here. Working faith, uniting us to Christ. I want to come back to these scriptures that I wrote here uh, in a few minutes. So the Spirit works faith in us. So, um, okay, where do we go from here? Faith will come up over and over through the catechism. And there's actually a question later, 86 or something like that. What is faith in Jesus Christ? So we're going to come to that more directly later. But we have to deal with it here a little bit. Uh, what is faith And so uh, I want to say a few things here. Um, Faith is, and this this comes from question 86, faith in Jesus Christ is where we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So that receiving and resting, you may hear that language a lot, receiving and resting, that's the essence of what faith is, receiving and resting in Christ. And looking at this question, this faith of receiving and resting in Christ is something that's worked in us. Ephesians says, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. So even that faith that we exercise is a gift of God. That receiving and resting is not even something we conjure up and have an innate ability to do. Even that faith is from the Holy Spirit who gives it to us. A couple notes what faith is not. Um, Because in our our world, faith or believe, uh, similar kind of ideas, um, I think they are spoken of um, in unhelpful ways in our world. So I want to lay out a couple things. Uh, this comes from Gerhardus Voss, volume four of his, his systematic theology, uh, page 84, if you want to trace it down. A couple of, of, couple of philosophies that he 
highlights here for us that shows us what faith is not. And first is, uh, there's a popular phrase, and this, um, back 100 years ago when he wrote this, a popular phrase that we still hear uh, reverberations of today, and it's a Lockean view, John Locke view of what faith is. The, The phrase is, I only believe that, but I don't know it for sure. So I believe it, but I don't know it for sure. So this belief or faith is is something uh, between an objective certainty and a uh, loose superficial opinion with no reliance. So I think we often see this in our world today. Well, I believe that. It's kind of an aspirational, I hope this is true, Um, but we can't know it for sure. That's the Lockean view of what faith is. Uh, The Hume's view, This remember Hume, um, the radical skeptic, he would say, there's no such thing as knowing anything. You can't know anything. You can only believe everything. We, well, our view of, of that the world even exists, we can't know that. It's just belief. It's just faith that the world exists, that other people with consciousnesses exist. We can't really know that for sure, but we kind of have a belief, a faith that they do. Kant says that the phenomenal world can be known by reason. So those things that we can see, this, the phenomena around us, we can observe and know them for true, uh, to be true by reason. But the noumenal world, which he calls God, uh, the self even, the essence of being, we cannot know that for sure. So if we speak about God, we can't know any of that for sure. And we can only have this faith, uh, uh, some kind of faith or belief that God exists. We can't know it. There's no way of, of being sure or certain of this, but we can have these kinds of beliefs. And actually, Kant thought he was protecting Christianity from, uh, from science. And he says, no, we're going to carve Christianity out of the scientific endeavor and let people have these beliefs, but no, we can't really know them for, for sure. Um, and, and so kind of building on some of these different ideas, we see today you know, these, these signs that say, just believe bumper stickers or t-shirts or whatever, say just believe, right? As if belief or faith in and of itself is some kind of moral good. Um, believe in what? What do we believe in? Um, I, I, it's, it's almost incoherent unless you have one of these other views of reality in the world and, and are following maybe a, a Kantian view of the world. Um, and so this kind of way and our, our world speaks about faith is there's no objectivity. We're not putting our faith and hope and trust in something that is true and objectively certain, but faith is subjective. It's grounded in subjectivity. And so we see the philosophers wrestling with this and talking about this for for hundreds of years. But the Christian faith is something different from the way the world talks about faith. And so traditionally, we talk about three elements of faith, the Christian faith, um, of true biblical faith. And so I'm just going to briefly mention these and we can speak of them for a moment. Uh, The first one is knowledge. True faith has knowledge of something. Um, And we're speaking here primarily faith in Christ, the Christian faith. So we have knowledge of Christ uh, to believe. And the emphasis here we see is not on that subjective experience of faith, but it's on the objective reality, what we're having faith in. So we have knowledge of that thing, that person in which we're placing our trust. So we have to know who Christ is. We have to know something about sin and our own fallen condition and our own eternal judgment in hell apart from Christ. So there is a a basic knowledge that's required for us to have faith in Christ, knowledge of sin, knowledge of Christ. 
Um, and I think the, the membership vows do a great job of saying these basic things. Do you acknowledge you're a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? Yes. And then do you look to Christ in faith uh, by receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation? I forget the exact wording. But do you look to him in faith? Yes. So that's, that's essentially it. Am I a sinner? And do I know Christ saves sinners? And can I look to him? So there's knowledge that's required. And the second aspect is assent. Um, some will say knowledge is uh, an intellectual thing. And we'll say, may, I, that's probably right. Um, knowledge, uh, knowledge is primarily intellectual here. So we have to know assent here, some would say, is primarily an emotional reality. We assent to something and, and agree kind of emotionally that it is true. We agree with it. And then the third one is trust. And this is an emotion of the will where we find refuge in that thing, in that person of Jesus Christ. And the Psalms, I love the Psalms. They, make, they use that phraseology all the time. Blessed are those who take refuge in the Son. Take refuge. That's an act of the will that I will place myself under his cover. I'm going to abandon myself. It's a turning from self to Christ. Knowing him, assenting, and trusting. These are the three elements of true faith, Christian faith. And so the Spirit works these things in us, and we'll see a little bit more in effectual calling next week, uh, these, these aspects there as well. So I'll stop there. Working faith in us. Um, questions? Comments? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Also, uh, I, I remember when I first taught Francis Schaeffer, it's called Below the Line of Despair, where there was anything that was not seen, all goodness, all beauty, Anything that was not just hard and hard facts, our entire culture believes that it's completely unknowable. Right, you, right. You can't even, you can't even have knowledge of it. Right, right. And that, that's really a, a line of despair in which you blindly trust or mm -hmm. faith. Um, and when I think of the best encapsulation of this, I think of everything from Disney. Right. Is a blind faith. When you wish upon a star, it makes a difference where right. you are. Your dreams will come true. Why? Because if I don't believe this, then I, then I face despair. Mm -hmm. I face true despair. That's right. That's right. Yep. And that's classic Kantian. You, you can't know these things. Um, yeah. And so you just have to have faith. And, and somehow that, that trust is an objective good that I can't quite understand. Yeah, Jim? So when we get back to what you said before about Christ died for sinners, mm -hmm. so some people take the belief that when he died for sinners, make the distinction of the call of election. Right. Talk, talk about election as the invitation is given. That's right. Exactly. They don't, it just isn't, it, it's, That's right. it's not a it's relevant topic That's right. for the invitation. Mm -hmm. so. Exactly. I think, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's not, if you're elect, come forward. No. It's if you, if you look to Christ, you are saved. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what it's all about. Great, great points. Yeah, Melissa. That's, I feel like that's where it's important that it's an objective faith. That's right. Subjective faith. That's right. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where the goal of the church, of the preaching of the word, is to hold forth Christ so that sinners would look to him and be saved. That hold forth that objective reality of who he is and what he's done to call sinners to faith and repentance. Can a deathbed confession 
Absolutely. Yeah. Can deathbed confession be real? Absolutely. Um, it's been said, right, the thief on the cross was a deathbed conversion, right? Uh, we have one in scripture to know it's possible, but we don't have too many to presume upon it. Because I've heard, you know, you hear some people say that. Um, so absolutely. And, you know, we praise the Lord that there are many accounts of those kinds of deathbed conversions. And sometimes it takes that crisis of the conscience of, I don't, I have zero certainty of what's happening to me after death to find, and there in that crisis moment, finally to realize, no, i I am a sinner in my sin, and I need to look to a Savior. So sometimes it takes people coming to that point, and the Lord works in them to, to draw them to himself. Absolutely. All right, let's, um, let's go to the second point here in question 30 with the, the few minutes we have remaining. Um, so the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ. So what Christ has done, he applies it to us by giving us faith, faith in Christ, trust, receiving and resting upon him, and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So we'll just say, thereby uniting us to Christ. So as the Spirit gives us faith, faith is that receiving mechanism by which we receive Christ. Christ, we are united to Christ. This union with Christ. You may have heard this phrase. Um, it is an important and incredibly deep theological concept. It's mentioned um, many times in Scripture. And this is where this important Scripture really is, is, is union with Christ uh, um, uh, you do with Christ topics. There's many places um, otherwise, but we see, we'll come back to these, but in Romans 6, um, Paul writes, uh, you have been, we were buried with Christ with him in baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says, he goes on, for if we have been united with him, with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we are united to Christ and we'll tease out some of these aspects in a moment, but we are one with Christ in a way, in a real profound, important way. We are united to him. Um, and we'll, we'll mention some of these other passages in a few moments. Um, and so f this faith is not a meritorious ground. This faith is not uh, what, what causes us to be united to Christ and to receive salvation. Faith is the instrument of receiving Christ. Um, you've heard the language in Christ in scripture, right? Paul uses this language in Christ all the time. Um, you this in Christ language is speaking of this union with Christ reality. Um, and union with Christ is an, kind of an umbrella term that speaks of all of salvation all at one time, all in one ball. So union with Christ speaks of everything we get from Christ. It's in this union with him because we get Christ himself and all the benefits flow from Christ himself. So this union speaks of everything. It speaks of justification and sanctification and glorification and repentance and all these things um, come from our union with Christ. So think of this as an umbrella term. And we're going to flesh out this umbrella term in the coming weeks with effectual calling, with justification and sanctification. We're going to talk about these different um, aspects of our union with Christ. Um, so some... Uh, some of our theologians use this term union of Christ, union with Christ. Um, they use the term mystical union, a mystical union. And I, I frankly don't like the term, but so many people use it. I have to, um, all the theologians use it. And John Calvin writes in Institutes, uh, book three, 11, 10, um, he says, this mystical union is that indwelling of Christ in our hearts. So Reform folk, some of us persnickety kind of people, talking about language, 
don't say Christ died for you. We're persnickety and maybe to a fault at times. Um, so we're also persnickety. Don't like the term, you know, Jesus is in my heart. Some, you know, you hear some Reformed folks talk about that. We don't like to talk about Jesus in my heart. Well, there's John Calvin talking about it, saying union with Christ is Jesus residing in our hearts, right? So we can't say it's bad. Now, maybe there's an overly sentimental way and an improper way it's used. But John Calvin says the indwelling of Christ in our hearts is what we're speaking of with union with Christ. This is Christ himself coming in us and to us residing in us. It's, but it's not a mysticism where the Christian and Christ are, 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 um, uh, lose their own personality, where, they're col- where we're collapsed into Christ, where we become God or something like that. The individuality is retained. Uh, the mystical union is not a moral union, simply a union of love that we have, our un- union of fellowship and friendship. Uh, that's more of a, um, some, some have that error in the Christian uh, in Christian, the Christian world. But this term mystical, I think the best explanation for it comes from Ephesians 5, uh, verse 32. Paul writes, speaking of a husband and wife, in this, this, this um, description of what a husband and wife relationship is like, um, Paul goes, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So there's a mysterious, mystical element to this. This mystery, this profound, he's actually saying it's not referring to husband and wife. It's referring to Christ and his church, Christ and his people. There's a deep mystery, a union that we share with him. Um, and there is, a, there is a sense that uh, we can't plumb the depths of this. We can't fully comprehend it. So it's mysterious in that sense. We can't full or mystical. We can't fully understand it. We can't put it all in a box. We can't make it make perfect intellectual, rational sense. Um, although it, it does make sense, we can't fully comprehend it in the way we speak. And so that's why it's called mystical, to, under, to, to help us say it's not against reason, but it's in a sense above reason. We can't fully exhaust it. Um, our theologians will talk about um, three components to our union. And um, let's, let's walk through these for a moment. First is the eternal union or the predestinarian union. And this is often grounded in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Where it says this, the Father chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, uh, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That first line is the most important one. The Father chose us in Christ. So we are united to Christ in time, space, and history past, and we are chosen in Christ. We're chosen because of a union with Christ. We share in eternity past. Because we are those the Father is electing. We're elected in Christ, this eternal union we have. The second one is the incarnational or the past redemptive historical, historical or the historia salutis reality of our union with Christ. That goes back to Romans 6 as one place where we can see this, where Paul wrote, I'll read it again, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And it says what Christ did in his death and resurrection, you were there with him by this union, by those who looked to him by faith, you were there. His death is your death. And you, as it were, died when he died. Your old man died. And when he rose to life, you rose to life, and even more, when his body rose to life, that is a foretaste of the bodily resurrection we will experience. So we are united even to Christ in his past accomplishment of salvation, the history of salvation. You, Christian, are there with Christ. You're united to him in his work on earth. 
And then the third aspect is the one we often think about the most, is this existential or the, the present union that we share. Uh, Galatians 3, uh, 2.20 says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4, Life is hidden with Christ or with Christ in God. Christ is your life. So our very existence is grounded in our union with Christ. Our life is grounded in our union with Christ. Um, I'll stop there for a moment. Uh, we're about running out of time. And, but this, this union is fundamental to how we now understand our, ourselves as Christians. We are no longer dead in our sin who are in Adam. We're no longer united to Adam, but we are united to Christ, our representative, our head. Yes, out there, but also Christ is not just for us, but Christ is now in us because of our union. We now have a personal relationship with Christ because we are united to him. And that speaks, uh, so anyway, I'm going to stop. We could t- I could talk round and round about this. Um, comments here. And yeah, Kess. Yeah, I think it's it can it can often devolve into over, over being overly sentimental. I think, and um, and removing from this the objective nature of salvation and faith, particularly because talking about Jesus in my heart that often revolves around a me-centered, experiential-centered Christianity instead of a Christ-centered, outside of me looking Christianity. But um, to say we can't use that language, I think, is wrong. But oftentimes it comes with other baggage. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. In a sense, can't you say it's mystical? Because you can't identify any activity or like confirmation or any of those kinds of things that churches do mm-hmm. as to when the Holy Spirit actually... Sure. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, there's a lot that we can't know and understand as as um, as human beings, what this operation of the Spirit and the union with Christ looks like. We, we can't understand it all. So yes, it is mystical in that sense or mysterious in that sense. Absolutely. Yep. Very good. I just want to briefly mention, um, so we'll go, so we've got the three components, uh, the eternal, incarnational, existential, but there's also um, four aspects of the existential. So we're now doing like subcategories of under three. I just want to mention these for us. Um, is this mystical reality. That's why it's called the mystical union, primarily because there's a mystical reality, as you were mentioning, Jim. It's not an ecstatic experience, not unreasonable, but a mystery now revealed is beyond our understanding. Um, but, and it's spiritual. And this gets to the very part of these questions. It's spiritual, not in that it's, um, uh, again, mystical in the sense of it's unknowable, but it's wrought by the Spirit. It's worked by the Spirit. This union is spiritual in that it's the Spirit who unites us to Christ a spirit who's doing this work of bringing Christ to us. It's vital in that it is, he is our very life. Our very life is his life. And that's what we read from Galatians and Colossians earlier. And it's also indissoluble. It's not dissoluble at death even. There's nothing we do in this life to lose the union with Christ. And there's nothing at death we do to lose our union with Christ. And we'll come to this later, question 37 or something. Um, talks about in our death, our bodies are still united to Christ. Even though they rest in the grave, our dead bodies in the grave are still united to Christ. 
and they await that resurrection because of the union that we have with Christ, even at our death. Our physical bodies are united to Christ. This is not just merely a, our souls are united to Christ. Our very bodies are united to him. And it's a wonderful, glorious truth. And it is how, um, how, we, are, how we grow is by this union and the Lord working and rejuvenating us and renewing our minds and our hearts because of the union that we share with Christ. All right. Um, there's so much more to say, but we're going to have to call it quits here. And we are just 30 seconds over. So I'm very glad. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Gracious God, that you would unite sinners to our perfect Savior is something that we cannot comprehend. How you would, by faith, unite us to Christ, drawing us to him and him even dwelling in our hearts through faith. Father, what a glorious truth that we are no longer identified in our sin, but we are now identified as saints belonging to our Savior. These things are too great for words. And even when we still find ourselves in sin and the difficulties of life, there's no greater hope than this. So may you remind us of our union and strengthen us in our union that we would glorify you all the more. Bless us now as we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.